Bibles and uh, open to Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you can't find it on your phone, there's one in a pew nearby. It's on page 1001. Uh, just a word of encouragement to us as a body, even just experiencing the, the worship service this morning is a blessing to me, uh, 70 of us gathering together to hear God's word. Um, Joe, thank you for preparing so well. And uh, then just the normalness of people. I love it. I love honest people who stand up here and, uh, and open our service with skill. Thank you. Somebody who stands up here and gives an announcement about all of us in our need for care for our marriages, those of us who are married. Those of you who aren't married, you don't need care for a marriage yet. Um, but just the normalness of us as God's people uh, working in the midst of the body of Christ. I love it, and it blesses me, blesses me. And Barney Fife. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to keep moving on in, uh, in chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 14 is our target. And uh, we're going to get through it. And it's going to feel a little bit like a fire hose. That's a lot of content. And uh, in the, the original reader, the original hearer, probably didn't feel so much like a fire hose because there's a lot of what was said that was common language and common understanding. Their understanding of the Old Testament was far richer than ours. Now, some of you might be an Old Testament scholar and you read through the first chapter of Hebrews and it just kind of clicks for you. For most of us, that's not the case. So every time we bump into an Old Testament reference, we're going to have to do a little bit of digging to find out what were you trying to say there. Because if we just look at, at it on the surface, it's kind of complicated for us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to hit those Old Testament quotes, and we're going to stop. And we're going to look at what those are all about. Hebrews originated as a sermon, it's a, but then it became a circulated letter. Why, why it became a circulated letter most likely is because it was relevant stuff. This was stuff that, that, that people needed to hear, and specifically the Jews who were converted to Judaism um, who were Greeks. Uh, these were Hellenistic Jews, and, and they needed some understanding Specifically in this text, we're talking about the overemphasis of the role of angels in worship. While it might not seem like a really big issue to some of us, it really was a big issue to them. And quite honestly, there may be some of us who are sitting here that it actually is still kind of a big issue to you. It's not that you have uh, an angel set up in the corner of your living room and you worship it, but you've got baggage maybe from your history of worship. Some of us who came out of a Catholic or an Orthodox background, we may wonder a bit more about angels than others. Those from a Mormon or a J-Dubs background may have some baggage that they need to work through. J-Dubs believe that Archangel uh, Michael is another name for Jesus. They believe that Michael slash Jesus is the one who's actually coming back at the second coming. That's some confusing stuff regarding angels. Others of us who are saved out of various versions of secularism, we, we've got a mixed bag of ideas about the spiritual realm, and it's a good to have a reminder Fundamentalists, evangelical church rats like myself, we might think that this issue is settled. Maybe so. 
But what would make somebody turn to worship an angel? What would, what would make somebody turn to worship an angel when they already know that Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the promised one has come? What would make somebody turn that direction? Bad teaching? Maybe they're looking for something more and they've heard something about an angel that does this or that and if I pull that lever, maybe the something more will give me what I need. Immediate results. Why would somebody turn to angels rather than the promised one? They want something that they're not getting from Christ. But I love Jesus. I, I, I would never, I just, I would never turn to an angel instead of Christ. Answer this. Have you ever turned to anything else? Have you ever felt powerless? Where did you turn when you felt powerless? Feel hurt this week? Where did you turn when you felt hurt this week? Where did you turn when you felt uncomfortable? When you felt out of control? When you felt like no matter how many times you rehearsed in the conversation how you were seeing things, I still feel misunderstood. When you left that conversation, where did you turn? Did you go aggressive? Maybe a little anger tantrum? Did you fight harder to win the argument? Did you lawyer yourself up through another conversation? Did you go passive-aggressive? Abandon the relationship. I'm just going to check out for a few days, and that'll show them. Where did you turn? Or maybe, maybe to, to dull the pain, you turned to food. Maybe a little extra glass of wine at the end of the night. Maybe one more workout. Maybe one more mile in the run beyond where I should have gone. Where do you turn? Where do you turn? That is the bigger question here. If you say to yourself, I don't turn to angels, maybe you can say to yourself and remember, we all turn to something. That's where we begin today. Asking ourselves the question, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? And when he is not enough, where do you turn? Where do you turn? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are, your, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, you will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who, are in, who inherit salvation? Praise God for his word. Amen. Have a seat. We begin in verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I have four points in my sermon today. The first is this. Jesus is better than angels because of his name. And we bump up into some words that, that give us some trouble if you've spent any time in evangelical Christian teaching Having become is a troubling phrase for us. It says, having become as much superior to angels, seems to say that there was a time when Jesus was not superior to angels, and then there's a time when he is more superior to angels. What the writer is commenting on, on here is, is not the deity or the personhood of Jesus. What he's commenting on when he says having become has to do with time or progression of events. It's about the progression of history. Historical events make things change. Specifically here, he's talking about the work of atonement being accomplished at the cross. There was a day when the work of salvation was not accomplished. It was planned in eternity past, as Frank spoke about in our worship time. It was foretold by the prophets. But the day in history when Jesus went to the cross and completed the work of salvation, this was the day that the writer is referring to of Jesus inheriting a name that is better than the angels. And what we are going to see is that name is Son, Son of God. Notice in verse 3 in your Bibles, notice in verse 3 and verse 4 a sort of parallelism. Verse 3, having, having made purification sin, has a parallelism to verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels, he inherited a name, and that name is son. Kent Hughes comments on this passage this way. He says, the context of Hebrews indicates that the name Jesus inherited is the name son. Again, this does not mean that Jesus was adopted into divine sonship. He has always been the eternal son of God. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 makes this clear. Instead, as verse 5 tells us, it points to that messianic or savior element of his sonship. 
they're glued together forever. Son of God and Savior, one who did the work of redemption at at the cross. They will never, ever be separated. When I say Son of God, I cannot think of anything other than the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Another place where this is made very clear is in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Listen to how Paul describes these two elements of the sonship of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now what's he going to say about the son? who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, there is, a, there is a earthly, fleshly heritage, a humanness to the Son of God, and that comes through the line of David. He said he was declared to be Son of God also in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus is fully human and fully God. The unique quality of Jesus over the angels is that he has inherited a more excellent name, and that name is Son of God. And that name is inseparable from what the Son accomplished at the cross. Remember again, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. After expressing earlier in chapter 2 what the Son accomplished, this is what the Father did on behalf of the Son. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A couple of evidences. A couple of evidences of not living with Jesus as the superior one in our own lives. A couple of evidences. And the first one is this. I don't actually have an honor or respect for the name of Jesus. When I hear Son of God, when I hear the name Jesus Christ used in vain as I go through my days, I've become numb to what that actually means. So much so that I let it pass by me. So much so that I I don't actually feel that trigger in my soul as if you were offending. Like, if somebody makes fun of my mom, I would get more offended. But as I walk through the mall and I hear somebody say, Jesus Christ! Or I listen to somebody on a work site. Or I listen to somebody at my home. Have I become numb? to the name of the Son of God? Have you become numb to the name of the Son of God? Or does it actually carry all of the weight that the Scripture intends for it to carry for us? 
when somebody mentions or sings of, when I read it, does it embody all of what it was intended to embody? And that is, you could pack all of redemptive history that points from historic history past towards the cross and history future back to the cross. Does it embody all of who God is and what Christ has accomplished at the cross? Is there a high value in your heart, your mind, your life, your speech for the Son of God? And the second thing is this. Do I walk, do I walk in guilt and shame? Do I hear and know of the work of the Son of God in such a way that it actually ministers to the guilt and shame that I could walk in without his work accomplished on my behalf? When I heap on the condemnation of my own sin and try to pay for my own sin with my labors, with my works, is the Son of God is Jesus Christ in all of his redemptive work, is it present for you? When somebody says to you, which in some ways, we're, we grow up in the evangelical world and we, we brush it off and say, you're just saying trite words to me. But when somebody says to you, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Do you understand that you don't have to carry that weight of your sin? Two evidences that Jesus is better, is not really functioning in my life. That the Son of God, the name of the Son of God, is not functioning in my life. It doesn't really faze me when people use it in a way that's offensive. It doesn't really affect me as I walk through my days. I actually slip into guilt and shame, forgetting the work of the Son of God. Let's move forward. My second point is this. The Bible teaches that Jesus is better than angels. The Bible teaches that Jesus is better than angels. Here's a few notes about verses 5 and 6. A few things to observe about verses 5 and 6. Each one of these three quotes comes from a different area of the Old Testament. Verse, uh, chapter, Psalm 2, verse 7 is the first quote, and it comes from the writings. The, third, the second quote is, is from 2 Samuel 7, verse 17, and that's from the prophets. Deuteronomy 32.43, obviously that comes from the law. It comes from three different areas of the Old Testament. And it's if the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, listen, all of Scripture, wherever you turn, look, it says it here, look, it says it here, and it even says it here. It's about Jesus, and he is better than the angels. The writer also, in verses 5 and 6, just a note, you're going to bump up to this all through Hebrews. 
the writer is teaching us how to read our Old Testament. He's saying to us that in light of who we know Jesus to be, let me show you what your Old Testament says about Jesus, the Son of God. This is where we get the interpretive principle that that Scripture interprets Scripture. You thought that it was a commentary or you had to go to an original language. Those are helps, absolutely. But Scripture, where it is very clear, it actually helps us interpret other places in Scripture. Another note. Each quote in this section, each quote is the answer to a rhetorical question that we find in verse 5. For for to which of the angels did God ever say? Question mark. The answer to this question is supposed to be never. Never. Never did God ever speak about angels the way that he speaks about the Son of God. So the conclusion we are supposed to come to when we look at this text is this text is what God says about Jesus. He's never going to talk about the angels this way, but this is what God says about his son. So listen, as we go through these these Old Testament passages, this is what God says about Jesus, his son. The first one is this. In verse 5, it's a quote from Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2 is a psalm that depicts the futility of of any attempt to overthrow God's kingdom. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Peter and John were preaching about Jesus early on in the book of Acts? They get thrown into prison and, and God miraculously releases them from prison. They go back to the brothers and sisters, and they are praising God. And this is what happens in the prayer. This is what comes out of them in their prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 28. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, that ought to trigger in you when somebody from the, the New Testament says something out of the mouth of David, they're pointing back to something from the Old Testament. This is what they quote. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, this is their interpretation of that passage. I'm just going to keep reading in Acts. They interpret it for us. This is what they think about that passage in the Old Testament. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These men knew that this passage, Psalm 2, that we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 1, was a messianic psalm. It's speaking about who Jesus is. Now, in Psalm 2, verses 4 through 7, it says this. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is in response to, this is in response to all the nations raging against Jesus, trying to overthrow the kingdom of God. This is how God responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And here's our verse. Here's our quote. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What the psalmist is saying in Psalm 2 and verse 7, you are my son, today I've begotten you, is that he is reciting what a prophet would speak over a king at his coronation. A prophet would come before a king, lay hands on a king, and say these words. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And these words come from the Lord in confirmation of the king. So here in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, the writer is saying that God's proclamation over the Son is this. Jesus, you are better and you are the rightful heir of the kingdom of God. The Son of God is the eternal king and it is eternally your name. And your role and your rule is eternally connected to your work on the cross. The Bible teaches that Jesus is better than the angels. His name is better than the angels. And he is better than the angels because he is the coronated king. Named so by his father. The second the second quote that's stated here and the third quote that's stated here, I'm not going to dig in as deep on every single quote. It would take us all day. But the second quote is from 2 Samuel 7, verses 17, and this is a prophetic word from Nathan to David. God had promised to be a father to David's royal descendant, who in turn would be a son to God and would build God's house. This was fulfilled by David's son, Solomon. But listen, that prophecy ultimately looked forward beyond Solomon and promised an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne, a son who will forever be a king. The third quote is this, Deuteronomy 32.43. If you go back and you read this text out of Deuteronomy, it says this, it says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. The Septuagint actually says angels there. The angels actually were intended to worship God. The scriptures actually teach that Jesus better, is better than the angels because he is a king, that he's accomplished the work of the Son of God, and the angels actually were, actually were created to worship him. The Bible teaches that Jesus is better than the angels. My third point is this. Jesus is be better because he is God. Remember, this, 
This writer is not just writing a letter. This guy's preaching a sermon. And, and as he rattles off these things, all of this is familiar to his readers. And you and I, we have to pause and see what's there. In this next section of four verses or four quotes, Jesus is better because he is God and, and he is unchanging and he is on his throne. Verse 7 says the first thing about angels, and then verse 8 is going to transition and it's going to contrast. Angels are this, I say this about angels, and then God says, I say this about my son. Verse 7 is this. This is what, the, what God says about angels. It's Psalm 104 and verse 4. He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What is he talking about? Like wind and flame of fire serve a purpose in physical creation, angels are God's servants of the spiritual realm in this physical creation. And they're good, and they are useful, and they are amazing creations, but they are creations, and they are only servants. And here's the main point. Just like a flame of fire... Just like a wind comes and goes, so does an angel. It is a temporary help that comes and goes. But of God, of God, of the Son, this is what God says. Verse 8 and verse 9. There are quotes from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. False Psalm 45 is a, is a love song that talks about the beauty of the bridegroom who is Christ. And the writer of Hebrews attributes this psalm to be a prophetic word given about Jesus. Hebrews 1.8 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Congregation participation. Repeat after me. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let's say it one more time. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I'm going to say it differently this time. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Emphasis on purpose what this is saying, who's speaking in this psalm? It's none other but God the Father. And who is he speaking about? Have you ever struggled to explain to somebody from the scriptures that Jesus is God? That's exactly what's happening right here. God the Father is speaking about his son, and how does he address him? Your throne majestic, king, and he says, oh God, your throne, oh deity, oh son of God, oh God, you are God of very God. And your throne is forever and ever. And there's the contrast between an angel and Jesus. An angel is a temporary help, like the wind comes and goes, Jesus, his throne, he is God of very God, and his throne will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. 
This is what sets Christianity, brothers and sisters, apart from every single world religion. To Muslims, Jesus is a lesser prophet. To Jews, Jesus is a good teacher and not God of very God. To Hindus, Jesus is one among millions of gods. Only Christianity worships Jesus as who? As God. Jesus is God of very God. The second contrast here to angels is found in verse 10 to 12. And this is a quote from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Let me read just a little bit of Psalm 102 so you get a feel of what Psalm 102 is like. It's a lament over the brokenness of humanity. Verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 102 starts with, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hold your face from me in the day of my distress. Jump down to verse 4 to 6. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. (laughs) Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. You get the picture here? It's like the worst country song you can ever think of. Life is hard. Life is hard. And every one of us has a story, right? We could go round and round and find out who had the hardest week here. All of us have a story, and life is hard, and that's what this psalm sounds like. And he turns the corner. It's a wonderful psalm for those of us who are going through times of suffering. Psalm 102, jump down to verse 18. It says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. What did he do? He looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. This is the picture the psalmist has of God. Those who are suffering, he is not silent and he is not distant. In the world of the broken being healed and the imprisoned being set free, God says this about his son. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, you will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. All creation will perish. Like a change of clothes, he will be done with this sin-sick creation. He will roll it up like a robe, and he's going to put on new clothes, just like going into the closet and changing your clothes. But you, you will never, ever change. Forever. These two Old Testament quotes together. God is saying to us, the Son is God, and he will never change. He's not going to come and go like an angel. He will, get this, 
he will dwell with you. <laughs> I love that word. He will dwell with you. How much better is that than an angel? A ministering spirit that comes and ministers for a moment and then goes. Yet Jesus, Jesus says, I will dwell with you. Oh, the presence of God. How sweet the presence and comforting the presence and how victorious the presence of God. The writer then moves quickly to the exclamation point of the passage. He says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Another rhetorical question, like in verse 5, when did God ever tell an angel to sit at my right hand? This ruling position of power and majesty. Verse 13 is a quote from Psalm 110. This too is considered a messianic psalm from even Jesus' day, meaning the Jews all concluded, they all concluded that this was talking about Christ who was to come. This is a common theme in Hebrews, this Psalm 110. It's actually mentioned 10 different times in the book of Hebrews. If you don't know the name Melchizedek yet, you're going to know the name Melchizedek. One reason it's such a critical psalm is because Jesus actually used it to confront the scribes regarding their inter interpretation of who Jesus was going to be. See, the scribes all thought that the Messiah was only a physical descendant of David. And Jesus confronted them in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 and 30, 37. He says this, And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Meaning, he's only a human being. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared this, and he goes to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it that you call him just a son? David is saying that the Messiah would not only be a human descendant of David, but spiritually, he is Lord. He is King. See, David believed the Messiah was God and that he was in his rightful place, enthroned at the right hand of the Father in majesty. And here is the pinnacle of the writer's argument. The Son of God is is not, and there never will be, a time... Let me say that again. That sounds really clunky. There is never a time when an angel will ever be bestowed upon with the name Son of God. And there never is a time where he will be offered the seat at the right hand of the Father in majesty. There is nothing 
This comes back to our original question. There is nothing that you have turned to that you made Lord of your life this week, that I made Lord of my life this week. There is nothing that God will ever say, hey, you know what? Let's put that at the right hand of majesty. Did you turn to food this week for comfort? He will never ask for a prime rib as the son of God in majesty. He will never turn to anything that you have turned to and say, that's a good idea. Let's make that king. It sounds silly, but that's, that's the reality of our lives. Maybe you haven't turned to an angel this week. Maybe that, just, that would just be weird to you. But what did you turn to? What did you turn to and you said, you know what? I'll find comfort here. I'll find salvation here. I'll worship this. Maybe just for a moment. You have to envision that from the, from the writer of Hebrews' perspective. You might as well be offering that thing that you turn to, that fit of rage, that moment of trying to gain control, that moment of retreating from people because you're going to make them pay, whatever it is that you chose to do to gain control, in the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews' mind, you might as well have put that on the throne in heaven. Doesn't make sense, does it? Isn't Jesus better? Isn't it better to turn to the to the Christ who was given and promised from the prophets of old and has come and has accomplished salvation on your behalf, isn't it better to have him enthroned in your life? Isn't it better to not turn to something that is insufficient to save and turn to the one who has already saved? Isn't it better to turn to a king rather than a servant? Isn't it better to worship one who is worthy of worship rather than a lesser God? 